0: Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not currently meeting for in-person services, but we would love to have you join us for our live stream at hopechapel.org forward slash live. We stream every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Well, good morning, Hope Chapel. Welcome back to Hope at Home. We had a wonderful gathering right outside the front of the church uh, yesterday afternoon, um, a full complement of uh, our congregation. I said to them, welcome to Hope on the Highway. So if you haven't had a chance to register for our Saturday night gathering outdoors, it was a wonderful time. I highly encourage you uh, to register this coming Tuesday. Well, for those of you who might be tuning in, Uh, For the first time, just allow me to introduce myself. My name is Mike Nazarian, and I have the great privilege of serving as one of our teaching pastors here at Hope Chapel. So we're very excited uh, that you've joined us and we wanna welcome you. Church, this morning we're gonna be concluding uh, chapter 15 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And so I wanna begin our time together by going right into the text. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read along with me uh, what Paul writes in verses 50 through 58. I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound This is the word of the Lord, church. Amen? Okay. I remember that when I was going into high school, my first year of high school, I actually went to a private Christian high school just outside of the South Bay. Um, I remember I had to sit down for an interview with the principal of that high school, and I had to kind of share... Um, the contours of my Christian testimony and life uh, up to that point. Um, And I'll never forget that he asked me this one question towards the end of that little sit-down interview. He asked me, Mike, what separates Jesus from every other religious figure? What makes him utterly unique? And I'll never forget that the first thing that popped into my mind um, was that Well, of course, Jesus died to pay for our sins, and as I was about to say that, I hesitated for just one moment, and I felt like the Holy Spirit just prompted my heart, and um, I just had a moment to consider, you know what, Um, Jesus is the only man, and certainly the only religious figure, who has gone into the grave and who has come out triumphantly. And so in that moment, I was able to say to that man, what makes Jesus utterly unique is that he and he alone has been raised and lives forevermore. And that principal got a little smile on his face and he kind of nodded and he said, amen. So the point of me sharing this little story with you is that the truth and the power of Christianity stands or falls with the resurrection. And that's why Paul has invested a great deal of ink here at the end of his letter defending and expounding resurrection. I think there's a sense in which he has saved the very best for last, because resurrection is at the very heart of the gospel. Uh, In the resurrection, God shows his acceptance of Christ's substitutionary work. In the resurrection, Christ's victory over death is sealed. In Christ's resurrection, our future resurrection is guaranteed. So what's at stake uh, in this chapter is certainly Christ's bodily resurrection, but not only his resurrection, also our future bodily resurrection as well. So today we're going to conclude um, this very special and precious chapter of Scripture. And as we do, uh, my personal and pastoral hope is that we would draw three main points from this text, that we would draw three main ideas from what Paul has written. And the first of those ideas, the first of those points is this. Christ's return will bring us total transformation. Christ's return will bring us total transformation. Look with me again at what he writes in verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, this first verse in this passage is a kind of transition statement. It connects everything that Paul has said up to this point in chapter 15 to the remaining eight verses he's going to say um, after this verse to conclude chapter 15. And the one key word to understanding this verse is the word cannot. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the central idea that Paul is introducing here is the idea of necessity. He's speaking of the necessity of our bodily transformation. The transformation that resurrection will bring to us um, as believers is necessary for the eternal existence that we'll experience in God's eternal kingdom. Why? Because, as Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, because the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. So Paul associates flesh and blood with that which is perishable. And in contrast, he associates the kingdom of God uh, with that as which is imperishable. And his point in these parallel statements is to demonstrate um, a fundamental incompatibility. So last week, Pastor Andrew spoke to us, and we saw in that passage that Paul focused his attention primarily on the continuity of our bodies in the resurrection. Paul said that what is sown in the death of our bodies uh, gives rise to what is raised in our resurrection bodies. And just as our present existence is bodily, so too will our resurrection existence be bodily. But here at the end of chapter 15, Paul is emphasizing the discontinuity of our bodies in the resurrection. You see, our present bodily existence is not suitable to the future that God has planned. Therefore, our transformation is necessary. Consider those words that Paul uses here in this verse, flesh and blood. I think that when we read this verse um, as moderns, uh, we naturally understand flesh and blood to refer to the composition of our present bodies, right? Because our bodies are composed of flesh and blood. And so we read this first and we're tempted to think that our resurrection existence will therefore not consist of flesh and blood. That maybe in some sense will be disembodied, but that is not at all what Paul is saying here in this verse. As a matter of fact, if we look back to what he wrote in chapter three to the Philippians, Um, Paul writes this. He says to them, but our citizenship is in heaven, uh, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul explains that our resurrection body will be like Jesus's own glorious resurrection body. Now, what do we know about Jesus' resurrection body? After Jesus was raised, we know that he clearly had a body that could be touched and that could even carry out certain activities such as eating. We remember uh, the account of uh, Jesus' journey on the road to Emmaus, where he unpacks how the scriptures um, speak to him, to two fellow travelers, and Um, after that journey to Emmaus, Jesus appears to his disciples in the village. And the text tells us that when he appears to him, to the disciples, that they're startled and that they're frightened. And because they're so startled and frightened, Jesus says this to them in Luke chapter 24. He says, "'Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones.' As you see, I have. So why were his disciples so startled? Well, they were startled, um, not just because they didn't expect to see Jesus. They were startled because Jesus was the same, but he was different. You see, after this encounter, we also see that Jesus ate some broiled fish and shared a meal with those disciples with his resurrection body. So by flesh and blood, Paul is not saying that in our resurrection bodies we won't have uh, those kinds of uh, compositional characteristics to our bodies. Rather, by flesh and blood, Paul is identifying the fact that our present bodies are subject to weakness, to decay, to death. And because of this, that they are therefore not fit for eternity. Even more, Paul says... That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God in Scripture always includes the idea of God's righteousness, of his perfect justice, of his holiness. It's a kingdom that cannot be inherited by those who still remain under the power of sin. Paul also says that our bodies are perishable. Um, Some of your translations might use the more literal word corruptible. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, or the corruptible inherit the incorruptible. The the word that Paul uses here is primarily used um, to denote the the breakdown of organic substance or matter, uh, dissolution, deterioration, again that word corruption. But it also has an attendant meaning. It it is also frequently used to indicate um, inward corruption or inward deterioration or inward depravity. You see, Paul's highlighting the reality that our present existence is totally marked by corruptibility. Our bodies are destined to die and our bodies are prone to sin. And so we need to see as we approach this text that the transformation we require is one of mortality and also morality. It's both exterior and interior. And it is therefore a total transformation, a thorough transformation, a comprehensive transformation that Paul is speaking of. Our current sinful and mortal bodies are incapable and unworthy of coexisting with a perfect, infinite, holy, and righteous God. Therefore, our bodies must be transformed. And in light of that, church, I want to say that we have so much to look forward to in our renewed humanity, in our resurrection existence. We will be like Christ No more disease. No more tragedy. No more pain. No more suffering. No more temptation. No more sin. Our bodies will be glorified as Christ's presently is. We will be perfected as he has been perfected. And this is a great hope for us as Christians. And Paul's whole point in this chapter is that Our hope is not some kind of mystical, Pollyanna, wishful thinking. It's not legend or myth or some kind of fairy tale fabrication. No, no, no. Paul is saying that this hope is certain. It's certain. How can we have certainty about this hope? Because we look back to the biblical and the historical records and we see this indisputable fact. Jesus was raised. And in his resurrection, he was the down payment for our hope. He was the guarantee of our hope. So what is Paul saying to the Corinthians in this passage? He's saying, you see, if you deny the resurrection, if you deny Jesus' resurrection, if you deny our future resurrection, then you are denying the gospel itself You are taking God's gospel and you are cutting the heart right out of it. As a matter of fact, that's exactly why Paul begins chapter 15 the way that he does. That's why Paul says to Corinthians back in the very beginning of this chapter, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel... I preach to you. What is at stake? The gospel is at stake. And he continues, he said, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he continues and he speaks to them and he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen, church? That is what Paul says next. So Paul has uh, opened this passage uh, talking about the necessity of transformation. Now he's going to turn his attention to the nature of our transformation. Look with me at verse 51 and uh, the second half of verse 52. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So Paul uses this word mystery. um, And we tend to think of a mystery as something that's kinda like difficult or impossible to understand or to explain, uh, something that's inscrutable. We, We say things like, oh, that person's past is shrouded in mystery. We watch movies uh, that belong to the murder mystery genre. Uh, We say things like, oh man, how could they have survived uh, that car accident? Uh, It's a mystery. Uh, I remember when I was an engineering student as an undergraduate and trying to solve higher order calculus problems, and I would come across a problem and say, man, this problem is a mystery. It's impossible. But you see, the word that Paul uses here. Uh, translated mystery in our modern English translations doesn't quite have that same meaning. Whenever Paul uses this word mystery, um, which he does a number of times in his letters, what he's really referring to is some aspect of the wisdom of God, of the counsel of God, or of the plan of God, that uh, up until that present time, God had sovereignly and providentially kept secret, that he had kept hidden but that he has now presently revealed and made known through Christ. So what is God made known through Christ? What is this mystery that Paul speaks of here in chapter 15? God has made known the certainty of Christ's future return. He has made known Christ's victory over the grave, and therefore he has made known the certainty of our future resurrection and our future transformation. So he says, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. Now in his letters, Paul frequently uses this word sleep as a euphemism, uh, kind of a substitute for death. Now here's the thing about this, it's subtle. Those who sleep eventually what? Those who sleep eventually wake up. You see, you and I are destined to wake We're destined to be raised. And Paul's expectation as he looks out over the annals of time is that at the time of our resurrection, many believers will be asleep. Some believers, many believers will be alive. But whether alive or whether asleep, we shall all be changed. Those of us who are asleep will be raised and changed. So it's now at this point that Paul is going to introduce the nature of our transformation. Uh, Look at the second half of verse 52. He says, uh, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In other words, our transformation will be an instantaneous transformation. Now, the word uh, for moment uh, in the Greek is the word atomos. Okay, which literally means indivisible. It's where we get our English word atom or atomic. Paul's saying that our transformation will happen in a fraction of time so small that it cannot even be cut. It will happen faster than an eye can even blink. But when will this happen is the next question that he anticipates from his Corinthian readers. And so finally this section addresses the time of transformation. Paul says that our transformation will occur, look at the second half of verse 52, uh, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So the trumpet sound has tremendous biblical significance in the new and especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament prophets. Um, A trumpet sound accompanied the arrival of the king. A trumpet sound was sounded as Solomon was anointed king. Trumpets were used to summon uh, armies and peoples, especially God's armies and God's peoples. Uh, Trumpets are used to alert people to danger. The the fearful sound of the trumpet accompanied God's descent onto Mount Sinai in Exodus when Yahweh, the, 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 the personal God, descended. But even more, uh, the Old Testament prophets expected the trumpet to sound um, the last battle cry, to warn of the approaching uh, day of judgment, uh, to announce the coming day of the Lord, to call the people of God from the four corners of the earth. Over and over and over, the trumpet sound is the heralding of the end. So when will the last trumpet sound? When Jesus returns. Paul is talking about when Jesus returns, and he makes this even more explicit when he writes his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, um, he says this, he says, uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, uh, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And I love how he follows uh, that, that majestic statement up. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words, because everything about Christ's return and what will accompany it for us is profoundly encouraging. So there's an unmistakably clear connection in Paul's writing between Jesus' return, our resurrection, and our transformation as his people. You see, first Jesus came to defeat sin and to secure victory over death. And Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he will come to raise and to transform his people and to put death to death fully And finally, and when that happens, brothers and sisters, our necessary and total transformation will be complete as Paul describes in verse 53, where he says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We have as our great Christian hope, the hope of glory, Being totally transformed, being perfect like Christ, and being present with Christ forever. So, church, Christ's return will bring us total transformation. Next, Paul turns his attention to the defeat of death. And the next point I want us to draw out of this text is that Christ's return Will bring us total triumph. Christ's return will bring us total triumph. Look with me at uh, Paul's words in verses 54 and 55. He says, uh, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, Paul is saying that when all these things that he has described take place according to God's plan, uh, return, resurrection, transformation, then Christ's victory over death will be complete. Then the grave will no longer hold God's people. Then the curse of sin will be fully and finally reversed. Then death will be put to death forever. And as if He's just overwhelmed with the glory, with the majesty, with the wonder of this future victory. As if he's overcome with confidence in Christ's guaranteed work. Paul breaks out in poetic verse and he taunts death as a doomed enemy. Now, time out. Pause and like just reflect with me for a a few moments on what just happened in this text. Let's just think about um, how death has been personified throughout um, history in literature. It's been personified as the grim reaper who comes for everybody. It's been personified as the great equalizer, as the great inevitability, as the one visitor none of us can ever escape. Every culture and language and people throughout history have acknowledged the inevitability of death. He comes for us all and there is no escape until Jesus, until Jesus. And we read Paul. Who in the history of peoples and cultures could in good conscience and in sound mind say the kinds of things that Paul is saying to death as he personifies and taunts it? Look again with me um, at his words. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so, you know, I could just imagine Paul dictating to his scribe, you know, he's he's dictating this letter and and, and now Paul's excited and he's he's just flexing this intense theological conviction um, and he's expressing our great Christian hope, but he's also quoting scripture. You see, before these words, he said these other words. He said, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. You see, as Pastor Andrew pointed out last week, the Corinthians had been skeptical about the resurrection. They had been skeptical about resurrection bodies. They had asked um, Paul questions. This great core central doctrine, part of the gospel was in doubt. And so he's saying to the Corinthians who are questioning the truth of the resurrection and therefore questioning the very heart of God's gospel, look in your Bibles. This, This has always been the plan. Paul effectively says it is written. And so Paul taunts death personified and he builds this taunt. He draws from the well of Isaiah chapter 25 and also Hosea chapter 13. Now I want us to just consider um, the picture that we see as recorded by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 25, we see this future picture of Yahweh gathering all peoples of the earth to his mountain for an unparalleled feast where he will deliver salvation to his people. So if you have your Bibles, um, just turn really quickly to Isaiah chapter 25, uh, verses 6 through 9. Um, I'm going to turn there really quickly. Uh, Isaiah 25, verses 6 uh, through 9. Um, and, And read along with me. The prophet Isaiah records, On this mountain... is drawing upon the well of this passage. It talks about Yahweh gathering the people and delivering them. And, and Paul is effectively saying, This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Jesus is coming back, and death will be swallowed up. In church, on that day when death is swallowed, when we are raised. And transformed. When our King Jesus returns, we will say of him, as his people, those same words that Isaiah records right here. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. His salvation. Now, I want us to remember that Paul has seen, he has encountered face to face the risen Lord. He has seen and touched and talked to the risen Lord Jesus. And so, with that crystal clear vision of what is to be for all believers when we are totally transformed like our Lord he mocks the enemy he mocks death whose doom has been sealed through Christ's own death and resurrection and even though we presently fall asleep it is because of Christ's victory that Paul's taunting of death is so profound and powerful because church Death's victory has been overthrown by Christ's victory. Now to bring his argument to a close uh, in chapter 15, Paul summarizes the whole situation that has given rise to the reality of death in the first place. Look with me at verse uh, 56. He says in verse Uh, 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. At first glance, this verse might be a little bit confusing to some of us, but but here's what Paul means. Uh, The sting of death is sin means that sin is the stinger or, or the instrument that brings death. Sin is the deadly poison that kills. The power of sin is the law simply means that it's the law that designates an action to be sin. Um, It is the norm, it is God's norm that defines sin. And we see uh, in Genesis 3 that humanity sinned in the garden. In Adam, we all sinned uh, by breaking the good and explicit commandment of God. And this breaking of the law um, has led to our current situation of death reigning, um, in our bodies. Uh, humankind broke the law, sinned, and brought death upon itself. And so Paul uh, rehearses this uh, sequence, the, the relationship between law and sin in death. Uh, the law provokes sin. Sin produces death. Paul deals with this in detail in Romans 5 through 7. But Paul doesn't leave it here. Next next he 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 writes he he we see recorded one of my fa- favorite verses in the bible look at verse 57 he says but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ did you hear that church thanks be to god who gives us the victory The victory over death. And that victory comes through Jesus. As I was reflecting on this text. And this truth. This week. I was just. Reminded once again. Of the great hope. That we have. As God's people. In this life. To deal with insurmountable loss. I think about my two children, about my wife, um, about my parents. I love my family so much. Every single night I, I, I pray over my children and I, and I ask the Lord, um, I, I plead with him for, for Zoe and for Zachary, I say, Lord, please protect them from injury or tragedy. Uh, there is a sense in which as a father, just the thought of Uh, one of my children being taken, uh, it it just strikes me as an utterly insurmountable loss. I know people in our church who have lost their spouse, even recently. I know people in our church who have lost a child or children. Um, Many of us know what it means to lose a very, very dear friend. Some of us, know what it's like to go through this life uh, facing the specter of death, uh, knowing that it is not far off. and, And we have to confront the fear of leaving those we love behind. There's a whole number of ways in which death produces the worst kind of fear, the worst kind of grief, the worst kind of pain that can just be utterly insurmountable. But here's the thing, church, as Christians who, who embrace the truth of this text, the truth of the gospel, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear of death. Certainly, we don't treat it casually or dismissively or minimize uh, its significance, but we don't have to live and fear. And this victory that has been secured for us by our Lord is why Paul can write what he does in his first letter to the Thessalonians. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writes this, he says, uh, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those are some of the most precious and encouraging and beautiful words in all of scripture. You see church, this is what God has done. This is our great hope. And this is what we look forward to. Christ's return will bring us total triumph. And now one very brief final point. Point three, Christ's return gives us motivation for mission. Paul here is going to speak of the assurance of victory, i.e. Christ's victory gives us, it produces in us Assurance. Look with me at the last verse of this passage, verse 58. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he begins this final verse with the word, therefore. And we all know that the word therefore is a conclusion indicator. And so there is a sense in which what Paul says in this one sentence, in this one verse, follows as a necessary consequence of everything that he has said uh, in this passage and even more broadly in chapter 15. This is what follows Uh, necessarily as a consequence of the truth that he has presented to the Corinthians and to us. And I think that we see here in Paul's closing exhortation um, that Christ's victory gives us two things. It provides for us two things. It provides for us a posture and it provides for us a promise. So first, Christ's victory provides for us The posture of victory. Look with me the first half of verse uh, 58. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul is calling the Corinthians to live in light of Christ's victory. He's saying in light of Christ's victory, which will be brought to completion when he returns and when we are resurrected and transformed, live this way. In light of that, live this way. He says, be steadfast. The word that is translated steadfast in, in our translations conveys this sense of being firmly and, and solidly in place. Um, but, but, it, but it also speaks to, to an a, uh, inward conviction an inward firmness, a resolve. Paul's dealing with their skepticism of the resurrection. So he's, he's saying, be, be steadfast, be immovable, be, be resolved. And then he uses this word immovable, which conveys the sense um, really kind of uh, not so subtly of addressing their tendency to be shifting or swaying. You see, they've been movable on the resurrection. So he says, be firmly planted, be resolved have conviction, hold this Hold this truth dearly, protect it. <clears throat> you see, the problem from the very beginning of this, this letter is, is that they are all out of sorts morally and relationally and spiritually um, because they have neglected, distorted, and strayed from the gospel. They have strayed from sound doctrine. And we need to understand as Christians uh, that... <clears throat> um, Right doctrine always produces right living. Recall that uh, just a few weeks ago, Andrew reminded us what the gospel is. Um, The gospel is news. Uh, It's an announcement of what God has already done. And so Paul is saying that it is this news, it is this announcement of hope in the death of Christ for our sins and in his resurrection and in his victory over death on which they must continue to stand firm just as they did when they received it originally. <clears throat> Paul's saying, don't abandon this news. Don't change this news. Don't compromise on this news. Rather, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding, he says. This word abounding conveys a sense of, of eagerness of excess. Um, It conveys a kind of pouring over and overflowing. You see, so Paul is saying, with such a staggering salvation in front of you, and with the glorious prospect of our future resurrection bodies, um, our response as Christians to God's gracious work in Christ should be one that pours over an almost excessive enthusiasm and dedication. And we can't miss what he is exhorting them to. He is exhorting them to the work of the Lord. And just to be clear here, in this context, the work of the Lord is not the work the Lord does. Rather, it is our work for the Lord. And Paul's not talking merely about ethical behavior here uh, in this immediate context, though that is his focus certainly elsewhere in this letter. But right here, the work of the Lord, the work for the Lord, is the work of the Lord of the gospel, the work of promoting the gospel, the work of making disciples, the work of ministering in in all the places that God has put us. I want us to just take a moment and honestly assess ourselves, but also just think about the state of the American evangelical church. I want to submit humbly but with some conviction, that that this has been lost in much of American evangelicalism. Because in the modern American church, the work of the gospel, uh, the work for the Lord, has largely been relegated to the professionals. Um, It's been outsourced to paid church staff who are expected to do the heavy lifting. And the truth of the matter is, and Paul is clear about this in his letter to the Ephesians, that God has appointed some in the body to be be in in certain kind of uh, more visible roles. But he has appointed some in the body to equip the rest of the body to do the work of the Lord. Paul says everyone in the church is to do the work of the Lord, to do work for the Lord, to do gospel work. Now that could involve... Uh, discipling your family. That could involve ministering um, in the local church. Um, That certainly involves uh, witnessing and ministering in your various spheres of relationship and friendships, um, in in the workplace, in in neighborhoods, uh, even in government. Um, We are called as God's people in light of Christ's victory in light of our great Christian hope to carry the good news and to herald the announcement of hope, not to deny it, not to sit on it, not to modify it, not to soften it, like some of the Corinthians certainly had. And our hope of glory in Christ's victory should motivate us in this mission. Now, I know what you're thinking, because as I processed this text, as I prepared this message, I thought the same thing. Many of us are intimidated to give ourselves to the work of the Lord in this abounding way that Paul exhorts. We don't believe that we know the Bible well enough. We don't believe that we can communicate effectively enough. We don't believe that we can really make a difference. We don't believe that people will really listen, let alone be changed in our skeptical, postmodern, anti-Christian culture. But you know what the problem with those assumptions is? Three words. We don't believe. You see, Christ's victory doesn't produce in us a posture of unbelief, but a posture of conviction, of confidence, of motivation. We must always be people who look back to what God has done and to allow that to motivate us towards what he has called us to do. You see, every human religion says, do this so that it will be done for you. But you see, the gospel reverses that. The gospel says, this is what God has done. Now this is what you go do in response. But Paul's not finished. What we must also remember Um, as we do the work of the Lord, um, is what he says in the second half of this verse. We must must remember the promise of victory. He says, be steadfast, be immovable, give yourself abundantly to the work of the Lord. Uh, But then in the second half uh, of verse 58, he says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He says, know this, know it. Your labor is not in vain. You see, brothers and sisters, everything that we do for the Lord stands under the sign of Christ's resurrection, under the banner of Christ's victory. And all of our service, and all of our witness, and all of our gospel labor is therefore guaranteed by him. But let's not be mistaken, Paul uses the word labor. And that word denotes activity that is burdensome. Labor that can bring exhaustion, that can involve distress. In other words, this labor is not easy. You know, we can't just kind of like coast for Christ. We're called to labor. And labor has a price. But Paul says, we must always know that when we labor for our Lord, that we never labor in vain because standing beneath our labors is the sure word of Christ's own triumph over death, which guarantees that we, like him, will conquer. So, Christ's return gives us motivation for mission. In closing, I just want to acknowledge, and I think you would too, Um, The 2020 has been overwhelming. It has been unprecedented. Uh, It seems like death has been everywhere. Uh, Starting in January with the death of Kobe Bryant, a Los Angeles icon, then moving right into a global pandemic. Uh, We witnessed the death of George Floyd It just seems to have gone downhill and downhill and downhill. The fabric of our society is dying. It's in decay. There's division and hate and dissension everywhere. Just this week, a Chadwick Bozeman passed away suddenly. But even more personally and immediately, we have recently lost a number of precious brothers and sisters in our congregation. Uh, Think of Sylvia Arenas, a very, very dear sister. Um, Just just a a number of people. Let me encourage you. One day, death shall be no more. Because death does not have the final say. Jesus does. He was raised, therefore we will be raised. He is our confidence. He is our victory. He is our savior. He is our king. And he is our hope. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.